So, as Lynn mentioned earlier, uh, if you were here a few weeks back, our friend Chris Lane from St Albans Vineyard was our guest speaker, and he did a great talk about one of Jesus' parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, the one about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. And um, a parable, if you, if you haven't come across that term, a parable was uh, a kind of story from everyday life that was used to teach a spiritual truth. Now, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words, don't they? And that was all the more so at a time when most people couldn't read or write. So to be able to picture something in a story and to be able to reflect on it and, most of all, to be able to remember it was very important. Let's have a very quick look at that passage that Chris talked about, where Jesus said this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field, which is the least of all the seeds. But when it's grown, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And Chris was likening this to what God has done and is still doing among us as a church. When Aylesbury Vineyard was planted 21 years ago, we were pretty insignificant, the least of all the seeds. But God has grown us since that time, and he continues to grow us, not just to be a plant, but to be a tree. And the purpose of being a tree is not just to be big for its own sake. There's no point in that. Not just so that we can say, what a nice big tree we've got. It's for a purpose that God has in that. So that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. So that the weak and the vulnerable and those in need, spiritual need and physical need, can come and be welcomed here and make their home here, and be safe here. Now, St Albans Vineyard started 30 years ago, and there were just seven of them. Chris and Fliss, their four kids, and a hamster called Fred. (laughs) Unless one of the kids brought a teddy along, in which case it was eight. But now they are over a thousand on a Sunday, simply because they believed Jesus when he said, I will build my church. Matthew 16. Because if Jesus is going to build his church, then surely churches should expect to get bigger, should they not? So if that is Jesus' plan, then why wouldn't we want to get on board with it? Sometimes people will say to me, why do you say all that stuff every week about guests and visitors? We've heard all that before. It's boring. But of course, it's not for us because it's not our church. It's for the people who are our guests and visitors because they are Jesus' guests and visitors because it's his church. Now, God could send people anywhere, couldn't he? But he's taken a risk on choosing us, that we would look after them the way that he would look after them. So that's what we want to do. I calculated once that the welcome and information for guests and visitors those bits of the service, take up 3% of the service time, which is really not that much to give up, you would think. And, dare I say it, it's not boring if it's your first time. Can you imagine how scary it is for someone to visit a new church the first time? How brave they need to be. 
and even more so if they're not coming from a church background. Imagine how you would feel if you were going to go to a service in a mosque or a Hindu temple or a betting shop. Now, um, betting shops don't have services, of course, um, so far as I know, but you get the general point. In any of those situations, most of us would have no idea what to expect or what to do, what was expected of us. So our mission as the body of Christ is not just to come and enjoy the services for ourselves. It's also to be Jesus' hands and arms, to go out of our way to welcome his guests to his church. Or as the parable puts it, to become a tree in which the birds of the air can come and nest in our branches. Hebrews 13.2 says, Remember to welcome strangers, because some who have done this have welcomed angels without knowing it. I'm sure there must be a joke in there somewhere about how do you know you've welcomed angels without knowing it. But if there are any angels here for the first time today and you're looking for a church in the Aylesbury area... So that's just one picture of what the kingdom of God is like from one of the parables that Jesus told. But of course there are many other things Jesus said about the kingdom as well. And one of the things that confuses people, including his disciples, is that Jesus said some things about the kingdom that sounded contradictory. In particular, he talked about the kingdom having come in him and his ministry. So the kingdom was here now. The kingdom had arrived. But he also said it was still to come in the future. Uh, He even taught his disciples in what we call the Lord's Prayer to pray for the kingdom to come, didn't he? So he was saying in a way it had and in another way it hadn't. And the way that we understand what Jesus meant by that is through what the theologians would call the now and the not yet, or the already but the not yet. In other words, the kingdom has come now already in Jesus' first coming, and he demonstrated the kingdom being here through what he did and what he said, and he told us to carry on doing the stuff that he did in the authority that he's given us, Keep on doing what Jesus did. But the kingdom is also still to come in its fullness. And that will happen at the end of this present age when Jesus comes again. In the meantime, we are living between the times. Between the time of Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And right now we see some of the first fruits of the kingdom because the kingdom is here in part. We don't yet see the full harvest. We see some of the fruit of the rule and reign of God in our lives, in healings and transformation and restoration, God being God and doing the stuff that he does supernaturally. But we don't see all of it right now. But every single time that we are praying for someone, what we're praying is, let your kingdom come right now in this person's life and situation. Lord, would you bring some of that future into the present? Because the kingdom isn't a place. It isn't a time period. And it isn't even heaven as such. The kingdom 
is the rule and reign of God. So wherever and whenever we see the rule and reign of God happening in lives and situations, we're seeing the kingdom. In that future kingdom, all that is great about human life will stay and flourish. But all the bad stuff in human life will be taken away and destroyed. All of the enemies of human life, sin and pain, sickness and death, everything that is evil in this world and all those who insist on practicing evil, all that will be taken away and destroyed. And that, of course, is how it is that we will have eternal life because death will be no more. Death will be destroyed and so too everything that leads to death. So following on from Chris the other week, the passage I want to look at this morning is also to do with the kingdom. Let me give you a little bit of quick background before we launch into it. So at the time of Jesus, uh, Israel was occupied by the Romans, a pagan nation. It was actually difficult to be much more pagan than the Romans. So faithful Jewish believers were kind of ashamed and humiliated and longing for the Messiah to come, to bring in the kingdom, to bring in the rule and reign of God and to kick out these Romans. Because of their circumstances, they assumed it would be like an angelic version of the Allied invasion on D-Day, liberating Europe from Hitler and the Nazis. That was kind of their mental picture of what it would be like. So everyone at the time was asking questions. When was this going to happen? And might Jesus be this Messiah who's going to lead it? They could see characteristics of the Messiah in Jesus' ministry, but none of that D-Day stuff seemed to be happening. When were the fireworks going to start? John the Baptist uh, sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Even after the resurrection, Jesus' disciples were asking him, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And then in the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, we see some Pharisees asking the same question. Now, Pharisees tend to get quite a bit of bad press amongst Christians, don't they? Uh, Pharisee and Pharisaical have become bywords or synonyms for hypocrisy and self-righteousness. But actually, if you know a bit more about it, that's very unfair. When the Bible criticizes Pharisees, it's talking about the ones who are against Jesus. The Pharisees were very committed religious conservatives. In some senses, they were like the evangelicals of their day. They were the ones who cared about slipping standards in society and people being sinful. The problem was this. They just had a tendency to allow their love for the law of God to take priority over loving the people of God. So they ended up weaponizing the scriptures they used what the Bible says as a weapon to beat people up with. Not that any Christians we know would do that today, of course. Okay, so here's the passage we're going to look at. It's in Luke 17, starting at verse 20. 
Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with a visible display. People won't be saying, look, here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So yes, it's coming, but just not with a visible display, not with the kind of fireworks that you'd been expecting, but also it's here already, right in front of you. You're just not recognising what it looks like. The kingdom is here, Jesus is saying, because I'm here. And it's also coming in the future as well. Now, no good sermon would be complete without just a teensy-weensy bit of New Testament Greek. I'm sure you would agree, obviously. And the words at the end here, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, those, those words could also be translated within you, depending on the context. And if you have a King James Version, you'll see that's how they translate it. But in context here, because Jesus is talking to some Pharisees, it's unlikely that he is singling them out and saying the kingdom is within them. And nowhere else does Jesus talk about the kingdom as being an internal spiritual thing. More interesting than that, though, is that the Greek doesn't just mean in the midst of you. It also means in your grasp and within your reach as well. So Jesus is saying the kingdom has started, it's happening, and you can be part of it. You too can grasp hold of it. It's within your reach to be part of what I'm doing here. And the interesting thing in Matthew in particular is that he doesn't just talk about the gospel or even the gospel of Jesus. He talks about it as the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' message wasn't just that he had come, but that in him and through him, the kingdom had come. So right at the start of Jesus' ministry, the first thing it says in Matthew 4 is from, this, from that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The gospel of the kingdom is all about the rule and reign of God, the active presence of God, breaking into this world, breaking into our lives and our experience. That is the good news. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 9, five chapters further on, same thing. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then toward the end of Matthew, when Jesus is explaining to the disciples about his second coming, he says this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that is where we are at right now. It's our mission to be proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom. So what does that mean for us today? What does it look like to be proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? 
me give you a few thoughts on that. The first thing to remember is that the word gospel means good news. So if the gospel that we're proclaiming doesn't sound much like good news to the people hearing it, then we may need to rethink the way that we're explaining it. Now, that doesn't mean that the gospel isn't challenging. Because whenever any of us encounters the living God, we pretty soon realize, don't we, that there's stuff in our lives that needs to change. The Holy Spirit will be telling us that when we encounter the Holy Spirit, that is what he speaks to us about. But you know, some Christians seem to specialize in doing that for him. As Mike Pilavachi often says, they go around dropping Bible bombs on people. But you know, that is not our role. We need to trust the Holy Spirit more. The second thing is that proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom isn't just giving people information. The Pharisees were pretty good at telling people what they ought to be doing. What they weren't so good at is telling people how much God loved them. If the gospel is the good news of the kingdom, then we need to be good news too. I wonder if you ever ask yourself, first thing in the morning, Lord, how can I be good news for someone today? I wonder if you ever pray that during the day or maybe do it throughout the day. How can I be good news for someone? The fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the presence of God in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we need to be thinking and praying, Lord, how much of that fruit can I give away today? In John chapter one, John is talking about Jesus and he says, of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Not just grace, but grace upon grace. And he wants us to be giving that grace away. I don't know if you've ever thought about what grace is. Grace is kindness towards someone who doesn't deserve it. If we're being kind to someone who does deserve it, then that's good, but it's not grace. And that's the reason why grace isn't easy, because the person we're giving it to doesn't deserve it. But the reason that we are called to give grace to people, to do grace to people, is because of God having extended his grace towards us when we didn't deserve it either. We are all disqualified, aren't we? And sometimes we keep on disqualifying ourselves, but still he gives us grace. Of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. It's like grace in layers. A bit like the way that I like cheese on pizza. Cheese upon cheese upon cheese. And anchovies. Grace upon grace. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul says that the gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. Another way to be good news is by joining in with the mission of Jesus. In uh, Luke chapter 4, which is Jesus' very first recorded sermon, he talks from Isaiah 61 in the Old Testament. He reads a passage which is a prophecy about the Messiah, and he says this. 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Whatever else it is that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed us for, it's not just for goosebumps and warm and fuzzy feelings. The first thing is that we can be good news to the poor. That's why John Wimber, who founded the vineyard, said, if you're not going to be kind to the poor, then please don't put the name vineyard on your building. That's why we do what we do in Storehouse and the various other ministries that we've been hearing about these past couple of weeks. Uh, If you missed the interviews, then please watch the videos that are on the website. And this is why we do what we do in Refugee Compassion that we were all helping to raise money for at the Noir Baller a few weeks ago, raised nearly three and a half thousand pounds. We're not interested in the politics of the refugee situation. We're only interested in being good news to them. We're only interested in delivering grace upon grace. Call it naive if you want to. Maybe we are. But you know, Jesus was gracious to people that the religious folks didn't think deserved it as well. I don't know whether that bit of Isaiah 61 was the only bit that Jesus read out on the day or maybe Luke just stopped quoting it at that point. Well, this is what the the next bit says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. All of that was Jesus' mission as well. That was what he was anointed for. So all of that is our mission too, to be this kind of good news as well. You may say, well, what about telling people that they're sinners, pointing out the things that are wrong in their lives? It sounds like you're soft on sin. Maybe. But I don't think that it's really our job to be doing that. I think it's the Holy Spirit's job, according to John 16, 8, anyway. It's only our job if someone may be harmed by what they're doing. And then, trust me, we are onto it like a ton of bricks. But the church, over the years, has done way too good a job of letting people know how much they're sinners before God. And it's done way too bad a job of letting people know how much they're loved by God. So if we need to swing the pendulum back a bit, even a bit too far at times, then so be it. After all, Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not the nagging of Christians. And then last but not least, I think it may be number four, but it might be five or six, doesn't really matter. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom is doing the stuff that Jesus did. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul said, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. We see in Jesus that he didn't just proclaim the kingdom with words. He demonstrated it with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so too, therefore, should we. And that's why 
Every single week and every single service, we pray for people and we see healing and transformation and peace and joy and people being set free by Jesus. That's why people fill in give thanks cards as well as prayer request cards. Do we see healings every single time? No, we don't. But we will never stop praying and we'll never stop believing in what he told us to do. To do the stuff that Jesus did in his name and with his authority. And then we leave the rest up to him and we trust him. And we saw in Isaiah 61 that it's not just about physical healing. We see emotional healing. And people's lives and situations and relationships and finances being transformed by Jesus as well. Do we see these kind of healings every time? No, we don't. But we'll never stop praying and we'll never stop believing that we have a good God who when his child asks for bread won't give him a stone instead. The Bible is very realistic. It doesn't overpromise. It's only Christians that sometimes will do that. And it talks about the realities of life, its joys and its sorrows in a very down-to-earth way. The Apostle Paul says there's a lot we don't understand. But what we do understand is that God understands. And one day we will too. Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. The first fruits of the kingdom that we experience now, already, in part, will one day become the fullness of the kingdom that God has waiting for us. Until then, he invites us to pray the future into the present because it's coming. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That future is coming, it's on its way. So when we pray, we say, Lord, would you bring a foretaste of that future kingdom, a foretaste of the not yet, into our now? We pray that in Jesus' name.